Well, thank you, Tim, and thanks, Trig. Um, there are different psalms that are uh, meaningful for different seasons of life, and the one that I, I've been praying ever since I turned a certain age, somewhere around 60, uh, since my youth you have taught me, O Lord, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds, and even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me until I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. And that's my uh, prayer this evening. Um, I need to tell you a very sad, so I'll warn you, a very sad but wonderfully hopeful story. About this time of the year, in 1997, at this place, a young man from Minneapolis uh, rode uh, his bicycle from Minneapolis with his dad across Wisconsin, uh, across Lake Michigan on the ferry to uh, Ludington and then down the coast and showed up for the first week of classes. His, his name was Ben Buckout. And uh, you know, what, what could be better than to begin your, uh, your first year of college? Uh, he was close to his dad, Don. And by the way, I've, I've asked, I've talked to Don and about all this, and he knows I'm sharing this tonight. Uh, they'd, they'd had this great time together. They, they, they get to hope, and, and his mother and, and his siblings show up. And uh, so it was sometime around this week, he was out riding his bike, and he was killed by a bus that was backing up as he went through the driveway. We were, we were rocked. So 1997, that means he'd be about 42 had he lived. And uh, his dad uh, was an amazing man. Uh, Don Buckhout insisted on, it it might have been at the first gathering of the year. I I just know it was right at the start. He insisted on sharing with the students his hope in Christ. And and you could tell this was something that, that that had matured in him over the years. He wasn't just reaching for some inspiring words to say. I mean, he knew, he knew Christ was risen. And the first fruits of all of us will be raised from the dead. So he comforted us all, and, uh, and it, it was good. Uh, it, it, but it was hard. And uh, in the spring, he asked if he could come back and share some things in chapel. And uh, he told a story. And again, it's been... 22 years, and I, that's why I called him up and said, you know, Mr. Buckout, I, I want to make sure I get this straight. Uh, you came back, and you, uh, and then I went and told him what I remembered him saying, and he, he confirmed, he says, yes, over, over, over Christmas, uh, there was a, a band concert at, at Ben's high school in Minneapolis. Uh, ben and his, uh, his two siblings were musicians, and they loved music, and, and uh, the Christmas festival was, was a big deal in their high school, and so... Mr. and Mrs. Buckout and, and the two surviving uh, siblings, they went to the band concert. In fact, his, his two brothers were playing in the concert. And it was gorgeous. And uh, it was beautiful. And uh, Mr. Buckout said at, at the break, he walked outside. It's in December. It's a cold night in Minneapolis. And he looked up, and the sky was black and cold and cloudless. And stars were everywhere. And he said, oh, Ben. If only you could see and hear this. 
And he said it was as clear as any word he's ever heard. He heard this sentence, Dad, if only you could see this and hear this. Well, whatever Ben was seeing and hearing in the presence of God, it had to be a lot like, maybe just like, what the Apostle John saw when he saw a door open in heaven. What did he see? Well, he saw a door open in heaven. And where is heaven? Well, we struggle to find ways to say where it is. We might say it's, it's up there. And by that we mean, uh, again, back to that starry night, you know, empty space for billions of light years uh, is up there. Well, no, not really. It's, it's, it's a transcendent reality. It's beyond our five senses. It, it's the world of the unseen. And maybe we're in, in heaven in the way that, a, that an unborn baby in the womb is in the world. It's really not that far away, but it's unattainable until something radical happens, like birth. I don't know. <laughs> but it's up there. And very interestingly, and you can get this uh, throughout the Bible, but I'm just thinking of the book of Revelation. It's out there. It's coming. So we might say, where is heaven? Well, it's up there. And you might say, when is heaven? It's out there. So Paul was talking about his own sufferings. He said you know, to the Corinthians, he said, now, uh, even though we're, we're wasting away, this work is hard. Uh, we do not lose hope because we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen because what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. And here you get this suggestion of, of, of a world, of a reality that, is, that we can see. It's accessible to our five senses. But there's something else coming. And in fact, at the end of the book of Revelation, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the heavenly city descending out of heaven like a bride dressed for her husband. Heaven and earth come together. So you might say, heaven is up and coming. It's a reality in, in space and time. And as Trigg was reminding us, it's, uh, stuff is going on there right now. You know, the worship did not start when we started. We joined it. But it's coming. So let me give you a quote. This is from a, uh, a Latin American theologian I like. I uh, don't know as much about him as I'd like to, but this quote is it's, it's something you need to write on a three-by-five card and laminate and keep it in your wallet. He said, hope is hearing the music of the future. Faith is to dance to it. Hope is hearing the music of the future. Faith is to dance to it. So in a, in a very real sense, uh, the gathering is a kind of dance party, if we're doing it right. That song by Fleetwood Mac, which you probably know, <laughs> don't stop 
thinking about tomorrow. It's coming. Tomorrow is coming. And not just like same old, same old, but there's something coming. And, and the hope is hearing that and starting to move to it. And so, though it's, it's beyond our senses, we know that when John had this vision, it, it was the Lord's Day. It was Sunday. It was the day of worship. And uh, he says earlier in the book of Revelation that he was in the spirit, which means he was in worship, among other things. And this door opens, and a voice commands him, a voice like a trumpet says, come up here and let me show you what must take place. Now, it doesn't say, let me show you what's what's going to take place, all that, that would be true, I suppose. No, he's, he's really saying it, there's, there's no absorbing interest in the future as such. It's just, let me show you what's, what has to happen. The things that have to line up. And so John, and I want to dangle this out before you tonight. John is allowed to see something of the unseeable. Yeah, something of the unseeable and even enter into it in some way. Wow. Well, think about a a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He says, uh, for this reason, uh, I fall on my knees before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, now this is what he's praying for the church. Let me just pray it for you. Out, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit so that Christ may actually dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, you have to use your imagination here. This is a prayer that you can know something that's unknowable by normal means. You can have a knowledge that is really surpasses knowledge. And then he continues, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So, John sees a door open in heaven. <laughs> Again, it's set to dwell on this. Well, it's cloudy. But stand with Don Buckhout on a cold December night where there's no clouds. There's this black expanse. It's beyond comprehension. I was told recently, I live in the West Coast, near L.A., that if uh, our solar system could, were the size of a coffee cup, the nearest star out of billions would be somewhere in Chicago. It's vast. It's immense. It's empty. Blaise Pascal said that the, the silence of these empty spaces frightens me. But then, what if... 
this thing happens where a door is open in that expanse and instead of being overwhelmed by the size of it all, you're looking into the heart of the universe. And you find out that all those spaces, terrifying, are not the real story. The real story is a father's heart beats in the control room, you might say, of the universe. Wow. Now don't forget, John was worshiping. It was the Lord's day. And John, I'm sure, believes something like what I just said. The worship didn't start when, when he started singing the hymns or whatever he's going to do. No, he, they entered into something, but all of a sudden he's realizing that in the worship of that day, he is actually now being given a glimpse of the reality within which they're worshiping. Come on. Come on, you guys. Get a little crazy about this. Could you, could you ask God to help you to see something of the unseen? It's not an unreasonable ask. It's a prayer that Paul prayed for the church. Ask God to open your eyes. There's a lot of great stories about people who asked that and got more than they bargained for <laughs> in the best sense of the word. Charles Spurgeon great 19th century preacher said that as he prayed for years, oh, help me see something of, of your glory as it is now. And one day, and he was reluctant even to talk about it, but he said it was, it was one day he got such an experience of the presence and the glory and the goodness of God, of the, the unseen, the unknowable, that, that it was so great that he said, God, just oh, stop it, please. I can't take any more. Now, I'm not suggesting you should go after that kind of experience, but you can pray that you would know the unknowable and that you would see something of heaven on days like this. Well, what did John see when he looked into this, this transcendent reality? Well, he saw a throne and someone's sitting on it. You probably picked that up. Uh, this, the word for throne is used 62 times in the New Testament. Uh, 47 of those times, it appears in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is about the throne, the seat of power, the control room of the universe, the throne above every throne. And at this time in history, the cult of Rome, which is... A, exactly what it was. It was the demand that uh, Roman citizens worship the emperor was especially strong in two of the cities that Jesus dictated his letter to the seven churches to, uh, Pergamum and Smyrna. Uh, persecution was, was sort of heating up. We know for sure that Domitian, and perhaps during the time that John is writing this, Domitian is systematically, the emperor is systematically persecuting Christians but most of the time, it wasn't official. It was just the mob. Christians were weird. They are. Always have been. I hope always will be. 
And it was mob violence. The powers that be, whether they be the powers of whatever would pass for social media in those days, or the emperor. And by the way, they had an emperor's day every month. Same word in the Greek as Lord's Day, once a week. Uh, John said, I saw a throne and Domitian was not sitting on it. <laughs> no. And the mob was not sitting on it. The White House was not sitting on it. Parliament was not sitting on it. The Kremlin was not sitting on it. And not only that, but he saw the throne. This didn't happen. No one saw the throne except very special people. In the Old Testament, it was, it was Moses, it was Isaiah, and it was Elijah. They got to see the throne of God. Uh, the rest of the populace, once a year, a priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and the throne was seen to be invisible behind, over the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. But no one got to look at the throne because that was, that was the next thing to look at God. And here was this first century Christian, and he's taken up into the, this transcendent reality, and he's looking. He's looking at the throne where God sits. God is in control. And don't forget, the worship didn't start when you started this evening. It's, it's going on right now. We joined it, and all these wild creatures, the, this hundred million angels that are singing, all this stuff is going on. And everything about it says, God is in control. He's Lord. You know, this is really needed. Uh, it helps us learn uh, what one philosopher calls the grammar of existence. You know what grammar is. Grammar is the rules of language that make language intelligible. It's the relationship of verbs and so on to each other, nouns. And, and so if your grammar's bad, your understanding's bad. You can't communicate. There's a grammar to existence. God is God. You're not. Now think about that. All of heaven is practicing the grammar of existence. They're just looking at the throne and they're worshiping. Okay, let me ask you a question. Don't answer it. Um, who do you think is the center of worship here at, on the gathering or chapel tomorrow? Think about it. Now, Trigg has told you, rightly, that you belong here. This is for you. But it needs a modifier. We do this for God. Now, he's the center. Now, Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, worship is a performance in which God is the audience. And the worshipers 
are the performers. And people like me who get up in front are the prompters, if you like a dramatic metaphor here. And heaven, he, who gets sung to? God. Who gets worship? God. Who gets praise? God. The whole thing is about God. Grammar of existence. God is God, you're not God, and the throne says, join the rest of the best and brightest in all creation and be consumed with God. You know, I think one of the best things about worship, uh, if it's properly understood, is you spend an hour or so uh, doing something that is not about you. Now, ultimately, it is about you. Because the best thing you can do for you is not to do something for you. But let God be God. Yeah. God's on the throne. You can see it now. You see something of it. He's Lord. He is God. And if you pay close attention, of course it's hard when you're just hearing it for the first time perhaps, there are these uh, 24 elders, and no one's exactly sure who they were. Maybe it's uh, 12 for the apostles, 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel, whatever. They represent God's people. And they all are holding bowls of incense, which John says, oh, they are the prayers of God's people. Well, of course. When we pray to God, we, we hope. We, we believe in some way that, yes, it's, it, he's hearing it, but in the, it, it, when the doors open in heaven and John sees what's reality, he sees elders, the church, right there in God's throne, surrounding it. Brothers and sisters, prayer is not the only thing you can do for God, for the world. But I think it's about the most radical. Well, think about it. If you had instant access uh, to the president's ear and he would listen, you'd be a pretty influential person. Well, every Christian, every Christian, has instant access to the throne of God. That's radical. As one theologian put it, prayer is the ultimate interference with the status quo. Of course it is. Because God is there. Later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, we have another picture of an angel with bowls of incense, and he's showing it, to, and, and they're the prayers of God's people. And the picture here is that God is on his, again, on the throne, and it's, it's almost as though it's, the prayers are right up in his nostrils. You, you can't get any closer this side of heaven than that, than when you pray 
with God's people. Distinctively Christian. I watched the documentary of uh, uh, D-Day, and you may know what D-Day was or is. It was the invasion of uh, the Allied armies uh, in Europe, uh, in Normandy, uh, in World War II. It, you know, a, a terrible, a terrible loss of life, but it was pivotal in defeating Hitler. And, uh, and if you're on the beach, it was hell. Uh, the, the casualties were staggering. But there was a, a, on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, there was a documentary of two old men who, who had fought, who had been a part of the invasion. And one guy had been on the beach. The other guy had been flying a reconnaissance plane. And they, did, they didn't talk to each other. This just was edited by the filmmaker. But the, but the guy on the beach was saying, gosh, we're getting killed. That's what he was thinking. The guy in the plane, 30,000 feet high, you could see the whole thing. He's saying, wow, we're winning. And that's what happens when we pray. We come before the, the very throne of God, and he hears us, the one whose power controls the universe. But then John looked a little closer, and he saw what God was holding. He has a scroll. It has writing on the inside and the outside. It's sealed with seven seals. You know, you took warm wax and you sealed the thing. You pushed your, your ring on it. So it, it was a king's ring. And, and so God is holding this scroll. And everybody knows what's on it. It's what God's going to do. God's decrees, God's will, God's purposes, it's on that scroll and it's, and it, it's in his right hand, not his left hand. It's his hand of action. He's holding it. And all of heaven, you know, it, a little bit later, said there were 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Multiply that, that adds up to 100 million ready to sing when that scroll gets opened. And uh, an angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll. No one. Now again, the, the last 35 years in the Apostle John's life had been tough. Uh, Vesuvius had erupted, destroyed Pompeii had, and many of the uh, leisure communities on the Bay of Naples. Uh, a dark cloud hung over the Mediterranean for months. There were famines and earthquakes. The Roman army had suffered its first defeat. It was hard. Life was tough. What's God going to do? I don't have to take time right now to talk about what's tough right now. You know what it is. But somebody has to, has to have the authority, the, the, the power to open up that. And John says... No one was. And, he's, and what he describes as loud, anguished weeping in heaven. And an angel spoke up and said, Ah, don't weep anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is... This has to be maybe the most dramatic 
seen in all the Bible. The lion, of course, the lion. And John says, then I saw a lamb. Seven eyes and seven horns. Full authority, full wisdom. Wait, wait, wait. Enter the lion. Behold, the lamb. You know, they had a lot of words for lamb in that culture because they were a lot of shepherds there. It's like lammy. It was just a little lamb, but it had been slain. And the one who has authority, again, you're going to walk out of here tonight, and I hope you spend the rest of your life thinking about this. The lion is a lamb. Ah, but the lamb is a lion. Perfect. If you want to read a good sermon about it, it's a tough sermon, but it's worth your time. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ on this passage. It's it's tremendous. But again, the mystery of Christ. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And God's purposes in history are unleashed. Well, I got to wrap it up. Back to where I started. Dad. If only you could see this. Hope College students. Yeah. Trig. Tim. Yeah. If only you could see this. You know, sometimes you get glimpses. The church that I passed before I came to Hope College, uh, we had funded a, uh, uh, the, the Jesus film uh, to be taken to a, a Stone Age tribe in a part of the world I can't mention because it's still illegal to do this kind of thing. But we, uh, out of our mission budget, we paid for this film to be taken to this Stone Age tribe. And... Uh, they had never seen a movie before. And so the missionaries took it way back into the wilderness where this tribe was. And they, they had a generator and they had a screen and they had a, had a you know, projector. And, you know, it's just, this film, you've, maybe you've probably seen it. It, it just, you know, it tells the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's a motion picture. And these people had never seen anything like this. And, and so they, they set up in, in the village. They said they had a screen. They had the generator. They had the projector. And they started showing the life of Jesus. And they're watching it. They're just dazzled. And uh, it started getting hard for them because here was this, this man who had miraculous powers and who could heal the sick and feed the hungry and who loved little children. He was, everything about him was good. And then see, these bad people, they arrested him and they beat him up. And they got so angry watching this. Again, the, you know, the line between what we would think reality and, and you know, a movie was, was pretty blurred for them. And, and they, next thing he knew, they knew they, they were on their feet and they were running at the screen, <laughs> shouting, you know, they wanted to stop this, this travesty of justice. And the, the missionaries got them to calm down, you know, said, okay, the story's not over, so just sit down. And they, they were angry. 
Well, you know, it didn't get better. They, they took him and they nailed him to a wooden cross after beating him. And he died. This time, they weren't angry. They were stricken with grief. And they began to weep, and it was so loud that they had to stop the film again and calm them down. Say, the story's not over. Well, you know what happens next. <laughs> he, he was raised from the dead. And he met with his disciples again. And he had breakfast with them. And they got so happy. They started partying. And that was loud again. It was out of control. It was ecstatic. Missionaries didn't stop them at this point. Now, okay, you know the story. It's celebrated in heaven. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased persons for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on earth. And they were told that 10,000 times 10,000 angels start singing about it. So it's possible, I'm going to put an asterisk next to that, it's possible that you might start hearing and seeing this for the first time, or what would qualify for the first time, and be really affected by it. I think great Christian worship takes place when people are affected by what they're reading and singing about. And they're not afraid to get a little, well, hope is hearing the music of the future. Faith is to dance to it. Now, you've got a lifetime to learn how to do this. Uh, I've been at it now for, well, I became a Christian when I was 10. So about 66 years ago, I became a Christian. And I heard it all. I really haven't. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So, ask God to open the door for you a bit and your eyes. And act as though you believed everything you've just heard. In the way you sing and pray, the way you treat each other. Yeah, it's big. It's really, really big. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.